You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and I can assure you that you've tuned in for one fantastic conversation. I've been doing this podcast thing for well over six years, around 170 episodes. And I know that, like a parent, I shouldn't have favorites. But if I did, this one, the conversation you're about to listen to, might just be it. Jamin Fraser says his life mission is to help as many people as he can solve the insecurity problem. And I reckon he's doing an incredible job. What are insecurities? Where do they come from? What are the weird ways they reveal themselves in our life? And most importantly, what can we do about it? You'll hear about all of that right here from the brilliant, the articulate, and passionate Jamin Fraser. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jamin Fraser, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. David, thanks for having me. Really excited to talk. Well, you're a good man, Jamin, and you know what? I have a bit of an honesty policy with my listeners. I'm going to admit that this is our second conversation. After having a fantastic conversation with you some time back, I had the worst data fail of my IT career, and you were good enough to come back. I lost the audio. I hadn't sent it anywhere, unfortunately. My editor didn't have it. I lost the audio, and you have been such a good sport. Thank you for coming back. Oh, my pleasure. It was actually the, the greatest podcast recording in the history of the world. So we won't be able to replicate it, but we can do a tribute to it. So <laughs> a tribute. That's good. I was going to say, we, you, you're, we're both pros and so you're certainly a pro. <laughs> and it would be an amateur mistake to try and recreate it because that would never work. So let's just forget that ever happened and start from the top. Hey, Jamin, I've obviously spoken to you before. I've watched your TED talk. I've read your book. And I've heard you say that Helping people with their insecurity is your life's mission. And you know what, mate? I actually believe you. The way it comes across, the way you talk about it, the way you write about it, how did you land on this as being your life's mission? Okay. So I think there was a few things that contributed to me to land here. I think the first, if I'm really honest, is that is that I'm a very pragmatic person. So I probably get that from my dad, but it's it's helped me process the world and the complexity of the world through a hierarchy of ideas based on what works best. So I'm always fascinated about optimizing things to see if I could make them work better. And so I suppose just examining my own things that weren't working in my own life and kind of trying to deconstruct those to see why they weren't working and how I could work them better, I just kept realizing that at the bottom of limitations, they are always limitations in the form of beliefs and story. And so I kind of became aware of that in my own life and thought, if I'm going to make things work better and be pragmatic about my own life, I'm going to have to develop the skills to improve the quality of my beliefs. So that was first thing. Then, And secondly, my background in church pastoring. So just the the invitation into people's world to have meaningful conversations as pastor was always such a privilege and led to such sacred conversations. But those conversations often I often found quite frustrating because they never really led to change. And I think there were a lot of limitations about the frame of pastor that didn't make change possible. And the narrative around that many Christians were using about change was, well, change is God's responsibility. So I'll outsource the change work to God. I'll give cast my cares on God. I'll have faith like a I'll child. Just pray. I'll, I'll trust. And so I'd the desire to be useful was then undermined by the theology that kept people as children and, and avoided responsibility. So I, I was curious to see if there was a better way. And then when I was exposed to the coaching skill set, it was like, oh, where has this been my whole life? This creates a much sharper frame to have more empowered conversations that are all about responsibility and awareness and helping people understand their part in this mess already and then giving them the tools to improve that. So um, then it just became an exploration around you know, the idea of how do people improve and the, the typical approach was about behavior management. And I just never thought that made sense to me. Just seeing behavior was the end of the assembly line. Again, back to beliefs producing behavior. So I kept trying to build my skill set around how do you understand beliefs and change them. And 
they were always the things limiting people. And the more I understood about those limitations, they were always self-limiting beliefs. And underneath all of that, they were always the really ugly fears around maybe there's something wrong with me. So they were deep, personal, vulnerable fears, but they were in the form of story. And I had already seen other beliefs change. So I thought if I could get good at changing those beliefs, I could create some very significant change in the world. And yeah, that's a long answer to your question, but I suppose that's they're all the foundational responses to how I got here. And then I just got ruined for anything else and kind of like it would be unkind not to keep talking about insecurity because for whatever reason, this problem makes most sense to me more than any other problem in the world. Well, I've got to say, mate, it's very convincing. Your commitment to it is very authentic and convincing. And you said there that beliefs produce behaviors. So to think about the end result, the behaviors on the surface of someone's life is not the place to start for you. And and the case studies that you describe in your book are so incredibly revealing. And my God, it's it's like when you talk about people, I'm I'm seeing myself and people in my life through those stories. Hey, in a little while, I'm going to get you to talk through what you call your essential, your seven essential practice framework. Mm. And you, what you describe in your book, something one of the many things that stands out to me is that you talk about solving the problem of insecurity. And I really admire that. You don't beat around the bush. There's no euphemism there. You don't say, we're going to try and manage that or whatever other euphemism it might be. You say, we're going to solve the problem of insecurity. Well, yeah, and that is part of how I think about this because because it creates such suffering in the world, I think it demands a solution. <laughs> like it's 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 uh, you know, unresolved insecurity leads to madness. So I think if we don't solve it as adults, it weakens the collective consciousness of the planet. So we've solved all kinds of interesting human problems, health problems, technology problems. So why not human consciousness problems as well? So yeah. And look, to be honest, I don't think I'm saying that's, I don't think it's very remarkable at all to say that insecurity can be solved when you deconstruct what insecurity is and how it was formed. Then of course it can be solved. Like it's, it's just based on a work of fiction written by a child. So there is no substance to it. Uh, yeah. The solving of it is. That was an incredibly powerful point I've heard you make before. That idea that. So many insecurities that people exist with and that affect their behavior, and we'll talk more about how insecurities affect behavior, but they're a story that was created by a child, a child with limited skills and tools trying to understand the complex world, but they've reached a decision or a conclusion about themselves. They've formed a belief, and that belief has held firm through their life. And that, I think, is what gives you such confidence that you can help people solve their insecurity problems because so many of them lie within the beliefs they formed as a child. Well, well, let's go ahead and just say all of them are formed there. So if you think about the human condition, you know, it, it is an exploration back into the sense we make as children. We, we want to be good. We're afraid we're bad. And for fear of that badness ever being exposed, we run or we hide instead of going and looking at whether that could have any substance to it. And so anyone who ever resolves this fear has to go back and realize that your consciousness gets turned on when you are very young. And so therefore you go into the world and you must make sense of it and you make sense of it in with limited resources. So of course, painful moments are going to have, have limiting, limited stories and they'll be personal stories. So but yeah, you pointed out that a big belief of mine is, of course, you can change this because, of course, the child was wrong. The child couldn't have been right. It didn't, it didn't have the skill set to be right. So it's, it's going to be you know, the same when you go back and examine your own narratives, you'll find the child made mistakes about those two. So which are the ones that we hold on to? You know, you, that makes so much sense. It, it's so rational. And I love the strength of your story where you say, Again, you don't beat around the bush. Of course they're wrong. You developed this belief as a child. You didn't understand the world. You were looking at this complex world from the mind and the experience of a child. But I'm guessing that not all of the beliefs that I formed as a child are still with me. I'm guessing that there was some category of them, at least, that I've been able to evolve over time and see myself differently. So is that true? Am I, am I right or wrong on that? And secondly, what are the differences between the ones I cling on to that I formed as a child and the ones that I'm able to mature as I grow? 
That's such a great distinction and a beautiful point. Thank you for such a high quality question. So I would say the ones you've changed are simply the ones you have seen as opinions. So like a a really superficial example from my own life is I used to have an opinion that mushrooms were disgusting. Now I think they're great. You know, so I had a very strong belief that they were terrible, that there was no advantage to consuming mushrooms. But now I kind of realized, ah, you know, that was just an opinion I had at the time with limited resources and I changed it because I saw it was an opinion. I saw it wasn't a fact, a truth, empirically backed data, researched, you know, concrete idea. It was an opinion and opinions are the lowest form of knowing anything. So therefore the easiest thing to change. And I still know that my current belief is an opinion. I know that mushrooms are delicious is not a true statement. It's just my opinion about mushrooms. So. They're the ones you change. When you see it's an opinion, you change it. If you think it's not an opinion, then you don't change it because you think it's true and real and concrete. But when you see that they're all opinions, it's just an opinion problem, then you go, oh my goodness, every single one of them can be changed. Can you give me an example of a an insecurity, behaviors that are driven by a belief that was formed in childhood and it's wrong and it has a big impact on someone's life down the track? What are the What are the big ones that you come across in in the the lives of adults? Well, let's just go a classic example. You know, so someone's had their parents divorce when they were young. So happens frequently, but, you know, one in two marriages end in divorce, first marriages, and then, you know, the second marriage is also highly high statistics of ending in divorce. So lots of children watch their parents separate. And that's a very troubling thing for a child to watch because. You look to your parents for everything. They're your safety. They're your love. They know better, you know, and so you don't want that to happen. Um, and because a, because a child is a sense-making being and goes into the world with two questions to help them make sense of their world, question one, why did that happen? Question two, and what does it mean about me? Like whether you're aware of it or not, those questions are being asked and answered at every single experience. And so that child goes through the divorce and goes, so why is this happening? Um, I don't want it to happen, but it is happening. And what does it mean about me? And they start wrestling with those questions and they start looking at the data they've got access to because, you know, Tim from next door, little Timmy, his parents aren't divorced. And, you know, the kids at school, their parents aren't being divorced. And, oh, in fact, I don't, I can't see anyone else's parents are divorcing. So why is this happening? What does it mean about me? Well, I've obviously caused this. If I was not so annoying, if I, clean my room once in a while if I didn't always ask for Maccas. You know, I've created stress. I've torn my parents apart. It's on me. So what does this mean? It means I'm dangerous. It means I hurt the people I love. So you can understand how that kind of sense-making narrative gets formed for a child going through a divorce. But then you watch what happens if that doesn't get updated. You watch then people sabotage their future relationships because deep down they're a bad person who hurts those they love. So so then when they find themselves getting too close to people they care about, they end it so that they don't hurt them. They get in first and reject the other person so they don't get rejected or they sabotage the relationship before it goes toxic because they know eventually their badness is going to come out and ruin this relationship too because they've always ruined relationships. You know, So that's a classic one that happens so frequently all based on a misunderstanding of a child in pain trying to make sense of his parents separating. Is there any element to that where you think about a child who's been through that experience and then their self-sabotaging relationships as an adult? Is there anything about that where they're they're latching onto the story that they've created about themselves, where they've said to themselves, I'm bad for relationships. I will I will ruin this one way or another because that's what I did as a kid to my parents. So if they're in a relationship that's working really well as an adult, they've got to say, well, hang on. That will change my story about myself, and I want to cling on to that truth no matter how painful it is, so I'm going to sabotage this so that truth about me doesn't change. Because Um, because it's not 100% of people whose parents break up that can't have successful relationships, so there must be some who do choose to change the story. Well, of course, there's there's plenty that do change, and- that's the wonder of you know what's possible for each of us if we bring some conscious awareness to our storytelling. But I think more than a person wanting to cling to that story, I think the, the nature of stories is that they become our truth. They become how we filter the world. And so we delete and we, we distort and we generalize through that filter of what we deeply believe to be true. So I think you know there's a bunch of evidence coming that's contrary to that. Relationships are working. People seem to like me. 
But then ultimately it still crunched through that filter that says, yeah, but deep down there's something wrong with me. So this inevitably is going to is gonna be ruined. So I don't want to cling to it, but all the evidence that I've gathered over my life says that this is true and I can't escape what's true. So I think it's more that, you know, there's an unconscious commitment to that that is continuing to, to gather more and more evidence that makes it hard to see an alternative rather than a person deliberately, consciously wanting to, to cling to an old dysfunctional story so that they don't have to change. I'm, I'm not sure that how, that's how it works. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. You told a story in your book which fascinated me. It was about a, a, a mature woman who was struggling with her weight and has struggled with her weight for a long time. And, and once you peeled back the layers, you learned that when she was a young adult, she wasn't overweight. She was thin and, and felt good about herself and, and she was ready to get married. And at the end of the engagement, towards the, the time they were supposed to get married, the, uh, the guy pulled out. So you worked out eventually that she is now overweight as a protection to herself because she was rejected when she felt great about her body. So now she is protecting herself by not feeling great about her body. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about that and, and maybe a little bit more about this big question of overweight people in our world. We look around the streets and you know the, the statistics tell us that well over half of us, or maybe it's even more like 70% of us are overweight. And I've never met someone who's really overweight for whom their weight doesn't dominate their psychology, doesn't dominate their, the, the way they feel about themselves. So can you tell us a little bit more about that epidemic? Yeah, sure. So I mean- so extra weight, it's an unfair dysfunction because it's a visible one. So everyone has some kind of dysfunction, insecurity. Lots of people fortunate that they can hide them or compensate for them. But if you're overweight, of course, everyone gets to watch that. So that's, that's hard. But I would say that in every case, and that's a big statement, but that extra weight is in some form of a hideout to protect you from what you're most afraid of about yourself. I, I see secure people, people who have owned their value and worth and have nothing to prove and defend, attractive people and are healthy people because the body craves health. Every cell in our body is optimized for health. That's the default setting. So wherever there's unhealth, there's a reason for it and there's, a, there's an intention behind that. There is a strategy to go, if I pull back from the light, if I lessen my expectations of myself and others' expectation of me, if I don't show up at my best, well, then it won't hurt as much if I'm rejected or I fail, or people don't like me because I'm not I'm not putting it all out there for the world to judge anyway. So they're not judging the best version of me. So if they reject no, me, then it's not really me they're rejecting. It's not. So for this woman, yeah, so the relationship, she put a whole heart and soul into this. And then it wasn't that her fiancé had left and he'd actually cheated on her, and, but that was the real pain because at her best, she was rejected. Um, and because she had already invested everything into this relationship, she didn't do what she knew to do, which was to walk away. She she stayed there and made it work. But then from that point, never showed up at her best again and put on a lot of weight. And then so, yeah, there the was, well, okay, I know you're going to reject me again. So I, I can't exit this relationship because I don't see any other options. <laughs> if I don't have you, I'll have no one. Um, so, But I'll insulate myself from the pain that I know is coming eventually. And so this time you won't reject the best of me, you'll reject the second best version of me. And so a very loving strategy, a very kind strategy. You know, we're not, there's no judgment there. If you have this fear that you're not worth loving and there's something, something inadequate about you, well, then it, it's very loving to protect yourself from that reality ever being found out for sure and guaranteed. So, yeah, I, I think the best form of extra weight is a hideout of probably little bits of extra weight. So. Five or ten kilos to me is the is the cleverest form of hiding because it's hiding in plain sight. Um, you would never call yourself out, and no one else is going to call you out. So it's a clever strategy because it doesn't look like it's a strategy, but it just it just brings you back from the edge. It just helps you exist in a kind of vanilla, average space where nothing exceptional is expected from you. And so, if you can't, you're not supposed to do anything exceptional, then you're less likely to fail or be found out. You won't be in the spotlight, but. Uh, if you've got a six-pack, if you're attractive, if you're confident, well, you're getting more judgment 
you're taking more risks, there's more potential for failure, everyone's got an opinion about you, so therefore you're less insulated from judgment and therefore more likely to be exposed for your deep views about yourself as well. That's fascinating stuff. You know, I'll, I'll stop this in a minute, but one other thing that really fascinated me about what you wrote in your book was the idea of, of these mystery illnesses are really common in people you work with who have some insecurities that they've got something wrong with them. The way they feel is not right. And the doctors are confused and no one can work it out. And I've just got this thing that no one really knows. So that's part of why I'm like this. How common is that? And and what do you think about it? Yeah. I, I, the topic is weird health, weird health issues. That's the chapter of the, of the book. And I, I geek out on those things because I think they're structured of these things. They're not nearly as weird as people imagine. Um, I had a phone call with a woman recently who had, had had MS for the last 10 years. Now, that's an autoimmune disease, so it kind of fits this category of weird because doctors are not really sure what to do with autoimmune. They just kind of manage and medicate, and I'm fascinated. I'm like, well, so 10 years ago, what happened? Tell me about that. And she tells me this story of being a 2IC in two separate businesses, kind of working double jobs, serving someone else's vision, making two people rich, being very good at what she did, but zero rest built into her world, zero assertiveness built into her world, could not say no, just yes to everything, yes to everything, yes to everything. And like that's a path for destruction. That's a, you know, that's going to end badly. And so, so then she developed MS and, and then has been on this really difficult health journey for the last 10 years. But the giveaway line that she said was, I can still remember the day I was diagnosed with MS. And I remember walking out of that doctor's surgery and I heard myself say, thank goodness, now you have a reason to say no. Wow. And I'm like, and so what part of you thinks this is a weird health thing? Like you created a strategy, your unconscious gave you a gift, gave you a strategy they gave you, do you have, you had permission to say no now when you had never done any adult work about saying no. You'd never addressed your insecurity around needing to validate your existence by keeping others happy, which led this crazy existence that had no rest, which was destructive. So your unconscious had to go, well, gee, you haven't left, left me many options. I'll give you a gift. You'll hate this gift, but it will work. This will slow you down. It's a real thing so people will accept your ticket when you put it on the table to say, oh, by the way, I've got MS. I'm sorry. Let me, you know, back off. So, and here she is 10 years later trying to treat this as a health problem where I'm saying, what if it's not a health problem at all? What if it's an insecurity issue? What if it's a, an adult issue? What if you're still operating as a child, still outsourcing all your validation and significance to your world and it's time to grow up. And if you could grow up and develop this adult strategy for awareness and assertiveness and confidence and value and worth internally, you actually would not need to be sick. I promise you, you could let go of that sickness. It's just keeping you safe right now. Geez, that must be confronting for people when you talk to them about that and you talk to them about a, a health issue that they think is real, they've been managing and suffering with for a decade and you sit there and tell them that they're imagining it and they can let go of it. Well, yeah, not, not even that they're imagining it. It's definitely real. But yes, if they didn't want it anymore, they could let go of it. Not everyone takes that as good news. I was talking to the Speakers Bureau I'm with this morning. We were examining the issue of vulnerability and they were puzzled as to why it's grating on their nerves at the moment, this vulnerability language. And I offered the, the thought that perhaps the, the problem with vulnerability is it glorifies dysfunction. So it, it kind of, I'm so vulnerable, here's my weird bits, here's my neuro, neuroses, here's my people-pleasing tendencies, I'm an empath. And it's like, yeah, now I'm vulnerable, so celebrate me, celebrate my brokenness. It's like the reason you're vulnerable, the reason you become aware is so you can change it, so you can update those strategies so you're no longer a people-pleaser, you're no longer to an get empath. people to appreciate them. Yeah, but but because people get so much kudos from vulnerability now, now it's socially rewarded to be vulnerable. People are looking for these labels. Oh, quick, what's wrong with me? Oh, yeah, by the way, this is what's wrong with me. This is my weird thing and I'm going to cling to it so I get more validation by being weird now. So I think, yeah, not everyone takes that as good news when, when you say, do you know what? This sickness isn't hanging on to you. You're hanging on to it. And if you would like to let go, you can. But if you want to let go of it, it will mean facing your fears about yourself. It will mean updating your software and actually becoming an adult. Then you, you won't need these, these functional strategies. 
Jamin, I'm going to ask you to talk through your your seven essential practice framework, and I will probably interrupt you rudely along the way to give my undeveloped thoughts. But before we get there, there's a sweet spot here in life, isn't there, about an age for which at which you can best manage insecurities in your world. Tell us about that sweet spot and and why why is there a too young for this and a too old for this? Yeah. These are generalizations, so I wouldn't say always for this. So that's that's important to distinguish. But I would say uh, generally insecurity can be of value as a, as a young person. In your 20s, insecurity can actually be rocket fuel. So, you know, I, I'm sure we've all seen memes and quotes around, you know, the best way to motivate me to do something is to tell me that I can't or that I won't. And it's like, right, I stand out of my way and just watch me do it. And that's a real motivator when I've got to prove myself or defend myself against some slight or something that's undervalued me. I will demonstrate. I'll go to great lengths to prove that I do matter by what I can achieve. So people do all kinds of extraordinary things in their life motivated by that energy. It's toxic energy, so eventually it's going to destroy your life. But, you know, let it run its course. Let it let it cause you to, to go conquer the world while you've still got that energy but I think if you're still being motivated by that prove or defend energy into your 40s or even mid-30s, it's very toxic. You're now the insecure wanker in the room. It's hard to watch. It's hard to be you. It's eroding your relationships, your health. So midlife is the time to upgrade the fuel source and change from having to prove and defend to actually nothing to prove and defend and bringing it in-house. So this midlife is the time to change And it also coincides with peak readiness for change. So I think there's this window of opportunity, 35 to 45, generally, where people are most ready to be wrong about stuff. Young people are not ready to be wrong. And the older you get, the the more costly it is to be wrong. But midlife, you're like, this isn't working. And and I've still got a long way to go in in this, so I might as well fix it. And I've still got a long – that's right. So it's not – if I am wrong, better fix it now. It's not too late. I could set myself up. For an extraordinary back end. So better I know that I'm wrong now and change than not examine this. All right, Jamin, let's uh, let's make you earn your keep. Tell us all about these seven essential practices. So quickly, an introduction. This is my model, but my work was not to invent these. It was to discover them in the world and then create a model around them. So there are plenty of people who've gone before me who've found a way to be unhindered by insecurity but no one had really mapped it out how they'd done it. And so some people were unaware of how they'd done it themselves. So my research was to go, how did you do it? And and in every case, whether they were aware of it or not, these seven practices showed up. So I thought if they can do it, I can do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. So that's been the work to to create a model. And I love models. I'm a models guy. Show me the framework. (laughs) For anything you want to learn, there's a framework. And if you can trust the framework, well, then you can get the same result. so, so practice one is to step into the light, and you know there's a there's a bunch of key influences here. Yoda's wisdom rings true here. Uh, named must your fear be before banish it. You can. So typically, when people talk about fear, it's quite abstract. You know, Jordan Peterson says, "Be precise in your speech, because things that go unnamed become monsters and consume you." So if you talk about these big abstract fears, that actually is destructive to you because the more abstract. It is the more of a monster it is, the more precise it is, the smaller it is. Fear unexamined grows, fear examined is diminished. So practice one is to turn the light on and see what is this insecurity that I'm even dealing with. And that's step one. But isn't that, from everything we've just discussed, that's a super hard step <laughs> because we, you know, we just talked about people who have mystery illnesses or people who are overweight. And they might tell you that, you know, my problem, Jamin, help me with my weight. And you'll end up talking to them about something else, another belief they have about themselves. And here we're asking them to do that, number one, step into the light. Don't be vague, be specific. You're right. It is a big step and it's a step most people won't take, which is a problem, but the, it's the only way into the process. So I love thinking about this in terms of problem solving. And so the two questions that I use to help people get in the game for practice one is, Okay, so what problem are you most looking to solve right now? And so someone will say, oh, well, it's my health. Yeah, i got a health problem or it's my finances or my marriage. That That's my problem. That's the problem I'm most looking to solve right now. And then I go, okay, and what, what about that? So it can be more precise. What about your health? What about your marriage? What about your finances? Get more and more precise. And then question two is, now are you sure that's actually the problem? 
And often that's enough to go, well, I think it is, but okay, maybe it's not. And if it's not, well, then what could it be? So that's a journey toward awareness. That's a journey to go, okay, maybe if I take a look, I could discover something I've never seen about the nature of this problem. And if I could understand what the problem really is, well, that would help me go a long way to solving it. Hey, you just mentioned one of the other big chunky ones. We've talked about weight. We've talked about weird illnesses. And you've, I've heard you say before, or I've read somewhere you've written that the way someone manages their money is a clear indication of what they think about themselves. And that's because money is how we value things. It's the way we place a value on things. How commonly do you see that? Well, every every day, I, I just think money, money is a construct. Money's not real. The moment uh, Ken Honda talks about this in his book Happy Money, the moment money enters your world, it's a, it becomes an extension of you. If you find twenty dollars on the beach, the moment you pick it up, it's now a representation of your whole map of the world. You know, what do you do? Do you give it away? Do you save it? Do you feel blessed? Do you feel cursed? Are you guilty? Are you happy? Do you spend it? Do you save it? Your grandkids, the police officer, the lifeguard, like, and you think that twenty dollars is twenty dollars? No, it's it's just a you'll bring your world to it, and so therefore, if you reverse engineer it and look back through the lens of money, and you can see all kinds of extraordinary things about your relationship with yourself by how you interact with money. So it's a great place for self awareness and another useful way into practice one, to have a look at what is really going on here. Turn the lights on, stop running and hiding, being unaware, you know, asleep, wake up. Is this one of the a way that that someone who has negative beliefs about themselves can sabotage their own happiness by managing money badly in their life? Is 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 that what you're getting at here? Well, look, it's. I think it's more that they end up having a very dysfunctional relationship money because it's the end of the assembly line. It's you know, money just shows up as lack because they have a lack of value themselves. So, I think it just it manifests with their money rather than they deliberately sabotage it with their money. All right, now I've knocked you off course, of course, which is what I'm here to do. So, number one was step into the light. Tell us about number two. Could I just make one more distinction oh, about please. practice one? So, and when you turn all the lights on and actually are willing to be a dispassionate observer, even and just have a look, be curious, and you start with thinking, "I'm afraid of failure," "I'm afraid of rejection," and then you even look more closely at that, you realise actually that's that's abstract. I'm not afraid of failing. I'm afraid of if I was to fail, what does that say about me? And I'm not afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of if I was to be rejected, what does that say about me? So. I'm actually not afraid of what's out there. I'm afraid of what I think about what's in here. <laughs> so if I fail, then it's personal. I am a failure. If I'm rejected, now it's personal. I am not worthy of love. So the deep fears are always the things we think about ourselves. So, And then you look even closer and you realize, well, when was the first time you thought that was true? And then you go back to the opinion of a child. It was the kid who first said that. The kid who first said, oh, look at that. I've just seen who you really are. There's something about you. You're not as good as this person. You don't deserve, you're not as smart or, you know, you're a failure. And so when all the lights are on and you can see the problem clearly, you realize all you're dealing with here is an opinion, an opinion about yourself. And it's always an opinion of a child. It's, it's just, it's just such, there's such powerful concepts. It's, it's amazing. And I, you know, I, I admire, I've said it already, I admire the way you don't beat around the bush. You, you say things like, it's always the opinion of a child, or in every case, extra weight equals an unhealthy belief in yourself. It's, um, you know, I, I, love, I love the strength to which you, you approach this. All right, now, enough me blowing steam up. You, you won't have any insecurities after you've dealt with me, mate. <laughs> All right, now, number, practice number two. So responsibility. When you see it's an opinion problem, then the next logical question is, okay, well, where do these opinions come from? Yeah, I get I told myself this when I was a child, but you know, it's kind of because my parents were divorced or my school teacher was mean or I got bullied or I was abused or you kind of think about all the things that have happened or not happened that have contributed to those opinions. So then you can kind of have this awareness, excuse me, about the opinion problem, but then still be the victim and look to blame. Um, so it's- It's not saying that you have no right to blame people for treating you poorly, but it is highlighting that that's misdirection, um, which is great to consider. It's a magician's only trick. They're not actually doing anything supernatural. Well, not to my awareness anyway. Their real skill set is causing you to look at their left hand, assuming that's where the action's happening, when in fact it's all happening in their right hand. And because you're not watching, they could do anything here and it's supernatural because you didn't see it. 
So typically people think all the action took place in the divorce or all the action took place when their school teacher said they were stupid or all the action took place when they were abused. And because it happened there, well, it is what it is. You can't change that stuff. That's what's cursed me. That's what's ruined my life. But when you say, no, no, it's misdirection, that wasn't where the action happened. It happened over here. It happened with the pen. You you had the pen. It's not what happened to you. It's when it happened. What did you make it mean? What's the story you wrote down about why it happened and what it meant about you? So you realize insecurity wasn't created outside you. Therefore, it won't be solved outside of you either. You're the one who created these opinions and therefore you're the only one who can change them. So practice two is not, it's more than just taking responsibility. It's realizing you already are responsible. You're, you are not the actor in this story. You are the storyteller. So you could change this thing as soon as you are ready. There's a quote I'm searching for in my head, which I can't find, but it's something about we, we can't control what people do to us, but we can control the way we respond. And that's- well, Yeah, yeah. Victor Frankl, you know, and, and highlighted by Stephen Covey, just between stimulus and response is choice. That's the human component of our life. We get to choose. We get to take a break, observe, make some decisions, and it's those decisions that alter the course of our life, not what happens to us. So that's, that's practice to being responsible for those choices and then altering them. Is this the bit that you struggled with having these conversations as part of a Christian church? Because this was the point at which people would say, all right, you know, I understand the problem. I understand these negative beliefs. I want God to fix it. I'm going to pray and see if God will do this for me rather than me taking responsibility for it. Sure. Well, even worse, when they thought about the predicament, they thought, well, the devil has cursed me. It's the devil who who whispered in my ear that I'm worthless or that I'm terrible or that I'm scum. So so the devil created this problem and God is going to fix it. So they've positioned themselves as this powerless pawn in this cosmic power play <laughs> waiting for some battle in the heavens and praying that it's going to happen soon. So- yeah, that's that was the the interesting challenge to go. That's misdirection. It wasn't the devil who told you you were no good. Uh, you, you are the one. You said the most horrible words to yourself. You're not the victim in this story. You're the bully. You're the one. So when you realize that, you'll owe an apology to yourself for being so unkind, but you'll realize you control all the moving parts here and you can update this narrative when you're ready. All right, what's practice number three, mate? Well, stack the pain. So when you realize, okay, it's an opinion problem, you created the opinion. The next practice is to do an accurate cost assessment of what it's like living with these opinions. And this buys into some interesting human psychology, which is best exemplified by smoking cigarettes because, you know, governments imagine, well, if we just put grotesque images on cigarette packages and advertising and billboards, we'll stop people smoking. Well, no, because you can ignore it. You don't have to pay attention to the image. You could just disassociate and enjoy your cigarette. So just because something's killing you doesn't mean you have to pay attention to that fact. However, if you did pay attention to it, then it would help you change because whatever you link pain to, you are naturally motivated to move away from. So if you can kind of do an accurate cost assessment and realize, holy smokes, these are negative opinions I've got at myself from a child are actually ruining everything. Everything in my life is impacted by these narratives. The cost is extraordinary and it's compounding into my future. Right, okay, that's a massive case for change. This pain is unbearable. I'll do whatever it takes. I've got to go back to my childhood? Cool, whatever. I don't care. Sure, that's hard. Sure, that's scary. I've got to go face a dragon? Yeah, whatever. The pain of that is nothing like the pain of staying here with these disempowering stories I've told myself my whole life. Count the cost. All right, what's and actually, incidentally, Over what period, when you have conversations with people and you work with someone, over and I know it's probably a piece of string, but over what period of time are you having these conversations? You're not getting to practice number four in the first conversation, I'm guessing. No. So, you know, the sweet spot for me, I I think for someone really looking to transform their life, uh, I think six months is, is a really lovely amount of time, which, you know, might sound like a long time, but- I listened to a podcast the other day, someone talking about their experience with sexual abuse, and they had literally been in therapy for 30 years and imagined they'd continue in therapy for the next 30 years. I just thought that was such a an unfair thing to say because this person was very wealthy. Like, who could afford therapy for 30 years? Like, who has access to that resource? And 
So I'm saying there's some hard work to do, right? But there's an end point. If you devoted six months of your life to re-engineering your life, you you would be transformed. I promise you. Uh, so that's yeah. I, I think that six months is is really a great amount of time. So so practice four is the other half of the motivation cycle, and this is beautiful work introduced by Anthony Robbins, the pleasure pain motivators. Everything we do is is either an attempt to avoid pain or pursue pleasure. So if you just have a pain avoidance strategy to motivate change, that will serve you well until it runs out of steam because you've done well. So typical weight loss strategy, someone you know lets themselves go, then they have a painful realization of their weight, which creates massive pain and massive pain creates massive motivation for action and massive action takes creates massive change and then massive change lessens the pain, which then lessens the motivation, which then lessens the action and then- Round and round we go. So around we go, exactly. So don't just be clear about what you don't want. What do you want instead? What are you moving away from, but what are you also moving towards? So practice for us to develop a compelling life vision. What's the dream here? What would you like to have happen for your life? What do you think you're capable of? When it's all said and done, you know, what do you want your life to account for and done? So without that dream, this all gets way too hard very quickly. Your example about weight was great. And but when you were talking about that, I I had this example jump in my head about work. You know, the idea of everything we're doing is either to avoid pain or produce pleasure. You know, there's a lot of people who go to work to avoid the pain of being broke and not being able to pay their bills. But the people who've got a spring in their step, they're doing the same thing. They're avoiding that. But what they're actually doing is seeking the pleasure of doing something that they love and that makes them feel fulfilled. Oh, it's great. I think people who do life well are using pleasure and pain associations to their advantage and they are deliberately adjusting them. So just like smoking, you can deliberately help yourself quit smoking by just paying attention to the costs, not pretending there are no costs. Everyone's insecure. Most people are pretending they're not or pretending it's not costing them. You can help yourself be motivated to change just by paying attention to the cost. And you can also help yourself change by paying attention to what you want because most people are not paying attention to that. They're just settling for what they can get. They've stopped dreaming. They're surviving. But if you set your sights on a dream again, it's incredible what that does to your chemistry, to your motivation, to your energy levels. It puts a pep in your step. It gives you a reason to do hard things. And when you think about this in the context of something dramatic as re-engineering your life, which is akin to the hero's journey of facing the dragon and going back to the start and being reborn, the hero's got to have a quest. You know, Frodo's not compelled to destroy the ring and save the world by doing so. Why is he risking his life every day being attacked by orcs? You know, go back to the Shire, Frodo, where it's safe. So I find the moment people kind of forget about the dream or it gets a bit too hard or too inconvenient and they start settling, this work, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, yeah, it's all right. It's just the way it is. Hey, uh, practice number five is one that as soon as I read it, I hated it. But I knew it was true. <laughs> I knew it was true because this is, you wow. know, we've all tried to help people we care about in our life. And your practice number five is to say, get help from someone who doesn't care. And you're right. It's, but it's not what we do, is it? No, we, we're looking for someone to rescue us and we're looking to rescue others. So I think we get in the way. And I mean, I think it's the great challenge of coaches, counselors, and psychologists not to confuse the world about who the hero is. And many of them do, in, interestingly, out of their own insecurity. I think, you know, it's nice to be needed. It's nice to be the expert. It's nice to be the one with all the answers. It's nice to be the one sitting behind the desk giving the advice. And there's some safety behind the desk because no one's asking you any questions. So I've got some friends who are psychologists and they're some of the most dysfunctional people I know but they get to hide behind their skill set. Uh, so I don't think they're actually helping anyone really and I think it's quite unkind and they just keep people stuck in their dysfunction. So I think the, there's a couple of key points about this, you know, why you've got to get help from someone who doesn't care. The first is you're the hero. Like no one is coming to save you. You created insecurity and you're the only one who can change that. It's a problem within your opinion of yourself. If this could have been fixed by some loving person's opinion of you by now, your mum would have fixed your insecurity years ago by telling you how awesome you were. You know, you've had enough people tell you you're good. If that could have worked, it would have worked. 
So you don't need more encouragement and support and someone to pump your tires up. What you do need is someone to empower you, to show you the way and to give you some certainty that this is a problem that can be solved. And the reason they'll give you that certainty is because they've done it themselves. So they embody hope. They've done their own hero's journey and you can see the certainty in their eyes and hear it in their voice. And so you kind of trust them. And because they're secure and they've done it themselves, they don't need anything from you. They don't have a vested interest. They're not trying to rescue you or trying to take responsibility for you. Um, They don't get stuck in the Cartman drama triangle. I don't know if you remember that from the book, but that's some interesting psychology that the dance between the villain, the rescuer, and the the victim, the rescuer, the persecutor, and each of them need each other to keep them in in a job. Um, But it doesn't help anyone grow or change. Now, if we were playing a soundtrack to this story, it would have started off as very sad and moody and, and it'd be, be starting to get a little bit happier now that we're getting to practice number six because we're talking about a grand soundtrack because we're talking about being the hero. What do you mean about that? Practice six, be the hero. Yeah, although I'm not quite sure we've got the celebratory music just yet because it turns out the real work just begins here. You know, up till now... The guide, the wisdom character, is laying the path, is equipping the tools. But then then the wisdom character's gone. You know, if you think about, you know, the Gandalf, Yoda, Dumbledore, Mr. Miyagi, you want them, like the hero wants them to go save the day, but they're always gone too soon. You know, Dumbledore dies. Oh, don't ruin Gandalf- it. I'm on number five. Sorry? <laughs> don't ruin it. I'm on, I'm on number five. Yeah, Harry well- Potter five, but no, I knew that. It is sad because you think, oh, my goodness. And when you see Gandalf disappear out of the Lord of the Rings story, you're like, well, how's Frodo going to fix this? He's a bloody hobbit. Like, that's, uh, this is no good. Like, you don't think that the hero's got what it takes. And so there's some drama yet to come when the hero's got to go, oh, my goodness, now I've actually got to go face the dragon, this thing I've been afraid of my whole life, when insecurity. I've got to go work out whether I am valuable or not, whether – I am inadequate or not, these fears I've had about being bad or no good or unworthy, now I've got to actually go all the way back to the inception of them and see if they're true. And the drama of it is with every hero's journey, the hero either dies or comes out the other side reborn. So it's high stakes. Like imagine if you go back and you go, oh, my goodness, yep, I am worthless, I am a piece of shit, I am no good, I, am, I don't belong. It's like, oh, if that's true, you won't recover from that. You're worse off than you were before you started the journey. That's the end. So, yep, you'll die. However, if it's not true, if it's gen and, and you've seen it for what it really is, then you defeat the dragon because you realize it was never a dragon. It was just a dragon in your mind. You come out the other side reborn. You will never be insecure again. You've defeated this narrative in your life. And so, yeah, that that is the real work. It's to it's to go back to the origin of the first, go back to the child. It is to rescue the child. It's to go back and revisit the data around the divorce, around the bullying, around the abuse, to go back there and see what happened with the pen, to notice what opinions were formed in those moments and to bring your adult skills to bear for that child and to give that child more awareness and choice about around an alternate narrative. Practice six is to be the hero. Tell us about practice seven to rewrite the story. Well, I find lots of people, when they hear that, you're like, oh, great. Yeah, I get it. This has been useful, Jamin. So what you're telling me is I just need to go and write some affirmations on my mirror and just be really kind to myself and write some new opinions. Yeah, I get that. I can do that now. Well, you can. You're welcome to do that, but that will be a form of behavior management. You've actually got to deconstruct the old story first before you can rewrite the new one. If you don't undo the old opinions, the moment you get tired, stressed, anxious, triggered, those old narratives will take over and override just like they've done every other day in your life. So. Yeah, of course, we're going to use the pen to great effect as an adult, but it's in the context of having done the work to deconstruct the old story first. And then you realize that if all we have is story and you're the storyteller, okay, well, then how would you like this story to go? What opinions would you like to form? What do you think about mushrooms? Do you want to like mushrooms or not? Like you want to want to try something different here? <laughs> you know, you could actually be whoever you'd like to be because you realize the first version of you was just a character you created to protect you from your fears and to meet needs. So you could write a new script and then you could reinforce that script just like you reinforce the old one and then it could become the new default script and your life would be changed. You would evolve in that moment. 
Jamin, I'm guessing that a lot of people who started listening to this podcast are still listening. They've heard what you've said. It's incredible. It's powerful. And everyone listening has insecurities and negative beliefs that are affecting their behavior to, to some extent or another. What's the one last piece of advice that you'd give for people who are still listening who, who think, yeah, this is me. Jamin's talking about me tonight. This is a predictable problem with a predictable solution um, and you're not special. I know you, that might come as a blow to you, but this is not a special problem. People get it wrong. They think that their that dysfunction is special and their gifts are not. It's, no, your dysfunction is not special. Your gifts are. like We've all got insecurity. We've all got unresolved issues from our childhood. Of course, you've got to go back. That is your most important adult work. And it's not just for your sake, it's for the sake of the whole world. We're all waiting to see you. We're waiting for your gift and you only get it when you defeat these insecurities. So you got to solve this. <laughs> it's, there's, there's no other way around this. Jamin, this is take two. This one has been even better than the first one, which I marveled at. I can't thank you enough for coming back and doing this with me on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun and I, I get emotional thinking about the privilege of an opportunity to speak to people about this because people suffer greatly for not knowing how to fix this and this is a solvable problem. So that if you're suffering, know that it's unnecessary suffering. You can find a way out. So thanks for the opportunity to share an important message, David. I, I appreciate it. And that was Jamin Fraser. I hope you found that nearly as powerful as I did. Jamin is incredible and he's on a worthy mission, helping people, helping you solve the unnecessary pain that comes with insecurity. I'll share Jamin's seven essential practices along with the other lessons I took from our conversation on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.